that, let's pray and we'll get into First Peter. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this, uh, this apostle uh, Peter, this man whom you used. Father, I thank you for the testimony of his life. Lord, I thank you for uh, how we have so much written about this man in the Gospels that we've seen him move from being a successful businessman to walking away from all, following after you. I love his zeal, his fire, his, his jumping in there, full board, following you, sometimes getting even above his faith. Lord, seeing how he grew as a man, following his denial of you that night in which you were arrested, to see his restoration at the Lake of Galilee, Lord, where he was recommissioned into the ministry, and, and Lord, really where he led the early church, the church that we are a part of, Lord, as he walked boldly with you following the resurrection, how he went the distance with his life, Lord, ultimately giving his life because he wouldn't deny who you were. And so, Father, as we read these words, as we study this text from him, who is inspired by you, who is led by your spirit to pen your words, Father, we pray that you would help us to see the heart, the emotion, that, that the text wouldn't just be some sterile words that we're reading, but that it would be life-transforming, that we would get a better understanding of what it means to follow after you, to trust you, to face difficult circumstances following you. We thank you, Lord, for your word, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. And Father, we do thank you. We praise you, Lord. We um, ask you for help as we work through this passage. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So this is one of those passages, the, uh, especially the, the part about making a defense for the hope that lies in you. It's, it's, sort, it's, it's well known sort of out of context. And when we study the passage, sort of looking in context, when I mean, you know, forced to, to teach through this letter, <clears throat> I mean, not being forced, but constrained by the letter, keeping it in context, studying these five verses, one thing just keeps bubbling to the surface. 
and really not evangelism, which I would think that would bubble to the surface, but the one phrase that, that has bubbled up and seems to me to be the key in this whole section, if not for all of First Peter, is this phrase, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's, that's a phrase, sanctified Christ as, hard, as Lord in your hearts, is a very sort of, uh, what I would refer to as like a Christianese sort of saying, what does that mean? Like I hear Christians talked about sanctification and sanctifying Christ in your heart, but what does that mean? And this word to sanctify literally means to, to set apart, uh, t- to... Um, to hold in a special place. Um, Jesus, when asked how to pray, he responded with the prayer that I feel pretty comfortable saying that we all know it. The Lord's Prayer. He responded to them, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now in that prayer that he gave for us, the word sanctified is in there, but it's translated hallowed. He says, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Sort of holy. Holy means to be set apart. Special use. And so I think that the idea of when he says set apart Christ or sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, I think that the idea is that we who have come to know Christ as Savior and know who he is and know what he's done for us, the idea is that when we wake up in the morning, we sort of say, hallowed be your name. Christ, I want to keep you in the center of of all of my actions as I go through the day, as I encounter people, as I encounter situations, Lord, give me your mind. May my heart align with your heart that I would honor and glorify you through all of these different situations. And in this passage, what we see happens happening in the sort of the context of Sanctifying Christ as your hearts as Lord. Two things sort of follow as resulting from this setting Christ apart in your hearts. We see that fear, worry, anxiety, those things are decreased or eliminated as we set Christ apart in our hearts. And the second thing is, is that we get hopefulness sort of bubbles out that there's this, there's this hope that is different from anything that the world has to offer. And so he begins in verse 13 with this question. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? This is a rhetorical question. He's not expecting an answer. His very question leads you to answer no one. But to back up, how did we get to this place? where he would ask this question. If we were to go back to chapter 2, verse 13, you don't have to go there. We see that that in chapter 2, verse 13, it says, 
um, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to various institutions. The first is the authorities that have been placed over you, the government. Even in its imperfection, which was way more imperfect during their time than our time, the believer, the follower of Christ, was called to submit to the Lord and to subject themselves to the government. We see that slaves, Christian slaves, were to submit themselves to their masters. It's very easy to, to, to translate this over to, to in our context, that, that if you're an employee, you're to subject yourself to the Lord, like you're submitting yourself to the Lord, and then you subject yourself to your employer out of your submission to God. We see it work itself out in marriages. And then in verse 8 of chapter 3, he transitions and he tells us to be five things. These are not actions. They're, they're description of who. The, the be is the verb in this uh, chapter 3, verse 8. We're called as Christians to be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. That is who we are to be in Christ. And from that character quality actions come forth. And then in verse 11 of of chapter 3, right before we got, he basically says, turn away from evil and do good. And the idea isn't that we're doing good to earn salvation. The idea is that your salvation has been paid for completely by Christ. You've been redeemed by God's great mercy. Wrath was coming your way, but because of what He did for you, you now stand justified before Him. And so resulting from the salvation, how we live our lives is supposed to be differently. And He asked this question, this rhetorical question, this is really a statement. Who is there to harm you if you prove jealous, zealous for what is good? The idea He's saying is, If you live, if you commit yourself, because you've set set apart Christ in your hearts as Lord, you're going to live differently. You're going to be committed to doing good because of what Christ has done for you. And if you live this way, if you spend your life rejecting evil, turning from evil, and doing good, nobody's going to persecute you. And this is a general statement. But when I look at the Scriptures, when I look at what we're called to do, 1 Timothy 2.2, Paul tells us to pray for the authorities. Pray for those that have been appointed over us so that, why does he tell us to do this? He says so that we could live tranquil and quiet lives in godliness and dignity. When I look at, I, I don't, I'm not going to give a history lesson. I don't have a, a, a big points to make. But if you look at Christianity historically and the societies in which Christians lived, Christianity, Christians doing good, has impacted the society around them for, for good. When you look at um, slavery, Slavery from England to here was God moving in Christians' hearts to stand against evil and to do good. We look at women's rights. 
I think far too much credit is given to the feminists who say they've done all this. When you look at what Christianity has done for women's rights, it, it, Christianity has always gone against the culture. During this time, women were property. And yet all of the New Testament, all of the scriptures that you are created in God's image. There's no difference between man and woman. You're created equal in the eyes of God. And to see how this has transformed society, when you look at humanitarian efforts around the world, present day for all of the knocking that's done against Christians, when you look at the humanitarian efforts all around the world, it's driven in large part by Christians or organizations that at one time their origin, even if they're not so much Christian today, they were founded by Christians that wanted to do good. And so generally speaking, if your life is marked by loving others, doing good, because you're responding to what Christ has done, you've sanctified Christ in your hearts, typically speaking, generally speaking, no one's going to persecute you. None of us know any sort of persecution. Most people in the world don't know persecution who are Christians. And I can hear you already because I hear myself saying, but Gunnar, you've been saying this whole time, this is the church, that they've, they're under this severe persecution. You've related them to the severe persecution that Christians in northern Iraq are facing under ISIS. It's absolutely true. They lived under Nero. Nero's wrath was coming, that it was a horrible season for Christianity and the wrath that came upon them. It's a horrible time in northern Iraq for believers who are there who are facing immense persecution that we likely will never face. Is a general space. Generally speaking, if you live this way, you won't face any sort of persecution. But he continues. Because outside of, generally speaking, he understands that we live in a fallen world. We live where there's opposition, we live where holiness for Christ, being set apart for Christ is met by hostility. And the reason this hostility surfaces is because in this whole passage, we see that as you live set apart for Christ, living life differently than the world around you, it ultimately begs the question, why do you do this? Why do you live this way? Why would you possibly choose to go to Mexico on a house building trip for one day when it's so dangerous there? That's not me saying this is, if you go to Mexico for one day to build a house, you're going to find all sorts of people. Then you start leading trips to Israel. Why would you take people to Israel? It's so dangerous there. But let's just focus on Mexico <laughs> because we're going in a couple months. And... Maybe you're going to go for five days. I don't know. Because ultimately the question says, why do you do this? The answer ultimately boils down to, Jesus died for me. He's blessed me with every spiritual blessing according to Ephesians 1. Not only has he blessed me, I recognize that I live in the United States where the poorest of poor are the wealthiest of those in human history. And I'm certainly not the poorest of poor. I've been blessed with running water. And my running water even has the option of becoming warm water. And when I look across the border and I see 
humans who were created in God's image and I see their need that they don't even have a house that we're going to go build them a house that's an 8 by 16 structure set on a concrete slab with no electricity, no water, no nothing, and they, with tears in their eyes, thank us because of that? I'm compelled because of what Christ has done for me to go. And see, now when you mention the name Jesus, it becomes very narrow. And the narrowness of Jesus then brings hostility from the world. If the Bible presented 862 ways that a person could make it to heaven, I would be preaching every single one of those 862 ways every single Sunday because that would be a part of God's plan. But the problem is, is when I look at the scriptures, when I read about Christ, he's the one who says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me well, then we become very limited in our scope of salvation. Not because I created it this way, but this is God's plan. And so then in that case, holiness is met by resistance, by met by hostility. And so how do we handle hostility in, as we set apart Christ as Lord as our hearts? And this is what he's, he's going to get at. He says, but even if, and I do appreciate how the, the New American Standard, I'm not sure if the others did it. I, I just don't remember off the top of my head. But here it says, but even if there's this sort of, this sense of, and it might not be. If in the English and the scripture dealing with the Greek is a very complex word to deal with. You're like, Gunnar, what are you talking about? If is pretty simple. They come into a fork in the road. Gunnar, if. I'm trying to think of a good if. I don't know. But if something if you do this, then this will be the outcome. If you don't do this, then this will be the outcome. That's what if means in our language. In the Greek, there are four different cases where all of them translate into the if in the English. So it can be terribly complicated. One of them is the first class condition. The first class condition means if, and it is absolutely true, then this. Many times in the English Bible, we'll translate this since because it sort of helps clarify the since you're in Christ, this is the result. The second class condition says if, and it's absolutely not true, this is just sort of, you know, hyperbole or or, um, hypothetical. I almost said hypocritical, but that's not where I was going. If, and it's not, then this. Then there's a third class condition, which is the one we're most familiar with. This is how it works in the English. If, fork in the road, you do this, this happens. If you don't, then this happens. Then there's the fourth class condition, which is the the least of all of them that are used and is the situation of this if. And the fourth fourth class condition in, in this Greek phrase for if that we translate in English says, if this is the case... And it's very unlikely. It's the farthest removed from reality. It's very unlikely that this will happen. But it could happen. But it's really unlikely, but it could. That's the fourth class condition. And this is what Peter says here. But even if, 
the fourth class condition. This is very unlikely. If your lives are marked with rejecting evil, doing good, living righteously, there are situations, there are times when that righteousness will be faced with persecution. And he says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, he doesn't say your bad decisions, <laughs> you're being obnoxious. He says, but even for the sake of righteousness, you are living set apart for Christ's righteousness. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. How, how can this be? Well, a page back in Second Peter, or I mean First Peter chapter 2, verse 21, it says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. It's like, if you're suffering for righteousness, God has called you for this purpose. I was really struggling with how do I... It would be really good if I had an example. All week I was on like the Voice of the Martyrs website trying to find a story that I could plug in here and I just could I just I felt like I was fishing too hard and so I finally just gave up and said sorry people no example on this one well then yesterday happened and um, yesterday I was a part of a, a conference for Christian law enforcement officers I was one of the speakers and one of the speakers that came up and spoke was a was a, a retired now officer um, Ali Perez or I think it's Ali Perez Ali Ollie Perez, well, this sounds good to me. Two years ago this month, he uh, was working as a detective, dealing with family crimes, uh, dealing with crimes that are committed against children. They had come across evidence of a man that was uh, molesting two young girls that were his stepdaughters. And the evidence against him was overwhelmingly, it was clear they had video. They had him on a phone call where he confessed to everything so they could go to Santee and they could basically bust down the door and get an arrest. And so he tells a story about this day. He shared that two years before the event, his life had so snowballed out of control and away from God that somebody finally drug him to church. And while at church, he began to rededicate his life to Christ and to get serious about Christ. Um, he shared about how he'd been moved to this family protection unit from the, from the courts. And, and that came with getting a government ride, which he was really stoked about. And he started talking about his transit time. And that this day that this whole event began to transpire, he spent his commute time listening to, to sermons on the radio or spending time praying with God. And he said that day, heading into work, he said, God, I'm a knucklehead. I'm quoting him, essentially. I'm really slow in hearing your voice. I really want to live my life for you. Whatever you want from me, I want to give you. But Lord, I'm fearful that I'm such a, a, a hard-headed knucklehead that I simply just will miss what you say. And, and I won't do it, not because I don't want to, just because I'm sort of dense and I'll miss it. And so then he gets to the point where he is now about to enter into this home. 
And as he kicks the door open with his partner to arrest this guy that was inside, he was met with an assault rifle of a high caliber weapon. And a number of shots were fired right away. The first shot basically took his arm off. Um, sorry, his arm was there, but unusable. He, was, he suffered another shot into his side. This was an, an arterial bleed, and he ended up laying on the floor. Basically, for 15 minutes, the assaulter locked them into the room. His partner was down on the ground also, and he said that he felt comfort, comforted because he could hear him giving the, the code, saying, officers down, officers down, we need help, we need help. What they didn't know is that one of the rounds had severed the wire in his microphone so that while he was transmitting, nothing was going out because the wire was cut. We were in a room filled with police officers yesterday and this guy spoke. And I'm thinking the whole time, rats, I got to speak after this guy. Like, oh man. And I began to look around the room and every single person in the room was like this. And to get officers to react like that to this situation is like, you're just dumbfounded by the power of this guy's story. And he begins sharing, I mean, I was in tears. He begins sharing the thoughts. He recognizes he can feel the blood. He realizes he knows he has four minutes before he bleeds out and he doesn't know the time. Looking back on it, he knows that he was in in there for 15 minutes bleeding out. All the surgeons are like, we don't even know how you're alive. You shouldn't have survived the day or any of the surgeries following. And he said he remembers sitting there beating himself up that he was a failure. That he was going to die in this child molester's house and leave his kids and his wife behind. And he was beating himself up and he couldn't reload his gun. He was desperately trying to reload his gun the guy that was assaulting him was also trying to reload his gun, but he was also shot. And he said it was like this race to reload our guns, but we both were so wounded that we couldn't do it. And he said he heard the guy load his gun. And he said, I'm dead. And he said he heard the guy walk towards him. And at this point, he said, that I, I'm not quite clear what's going on. Everything was sort of blurry in my mind. But I said, I'm going to look this guy in the eyes. And I'm going to look at him as he ends my life. And he said when he looked up, he saw something different than what he was expecting. And in this part of the story, I think all three pastors in the room, we were starting to get very uncomfortable with the story because we didn't know where he was going. But he said as he looked up, what he saw was the back of a man sitting on a chair with a table writing. And he said, I can't explain exactly what I saw because my words don't do justice. I don't have the vocabulary to explain. He's like, but I'm convinced. He's like, I know that it was Jesus sitting in the chair. And this is where my like skeptimistic, you know, I'm a pessimist and I'm skeptical. Those, I start really going, man, you're about to bleed out. It's all stuff. Like maybe you're just hallucinating. We all have hallucinated. But then his story keeps coming and I'm listening to this very like critical, like by the time I got home and Anna was there, I'm like, what do you think of that story? She's like, I'm convinced that Jesus was sitting in that chair. 
And I'm convinced that as people die, that Jesus manifests himself to people. And so the guy says that as Jesus, as his writing, he didn't say left or right-handed. I imagine a left-handed because that's the best way to write. Um, so he may think Hebrew. They write this way. It makes sense. He said that Jesus looked around at him as he was looking up to see the guy that was about to take his life. And Jesus said, you bless him. And he's like, what? Like, I mean, he's just thinking like, what? And so as the guy stood over him with the rifle, he looked him in the eye and he said, God bless you. And I guess the guy like looked at him and said, I can't do this. And he walks away. We're all like crying. And through this whole story, the reason I share this is as I read this verse, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. This whole picture of here this guy is, a law enforcement officer, according to Romans 13, according to what we read a few weeks ago, he's a minister of God protecting the innocent, protecting these two girls. And because of what he represented, this guy opens fire on him. And in the midst of this, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any debate whether the guy was suffering or not for righteousness. He was going there to help. He was shot because of being a law enforcement officer. And then as a follower of Christ, what God compels this guy to do is to say, God bless you. He ultimately got out. Everybody lived. I mean, he lost use of his arm and he's had something like 27 surgeries since then. The guy that shot him is serving a life sentence. But even yesterday he said, I hope the guy doesn't go to hell. I hope he comes to know Christ. And he, he looks at us and he says, guys, I can't tell you how blessed I am that God would allow this to happen to me. He said, up to this point, I was in law enforcement for 20 years. My wife and I barely ever saw each other. I was a total jerk. His name before he became a Christian was Angry Ollie. And he says, because of this, I am so blessed because now I've spent in these last two years so much time with my wife, so much time with my kids, so much good and blessing has come through this suffering. And I think our perspective of suffering for righteousness sake, we don't understand, but those who have been through suffering, I'll never forget the pastor from Uganda who spoke to us with his big smile. And he said, you Americans, stop praying for us that we wouldn't face persecution. We are so thankful for our persecution. We are so grateful that we are being persecuted for our faith because we are blessed. We in Africa are praying that the American church would suffer persecution as we do. But, but you guys aren't as blessed as we are. It's kind of where he ended it. And so Peter, writing to these saints, facing unusual persecution, our dear brothers and sisters who are in northern Iraq, our brothers and sisters during this time under Nero's wrath, they suffered persecution that 
we, I'm like 99.999% positive that we here in the United States will, will not experience in our lifetime. Things that we refer to as persecution just isn't the same as having horrible things happen to you because you won't renounce your faith in Christ. And Peter moves on. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And as you do this, even if you face persecution, you will not be fearful. Look what he says, quoting from Isaiah 8. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. If you're sanctified Christ as Lord in your hearts, worry will be minimized, will be reduced. The situation in Isaiah 8, the, the kingdom of Israel had been split in two, the north and the south. King Ahaz of Judah was getting stressed, being overcome with fear and worry because northern Israel had formed an alliance with Syria. And there was fear that this alliance, that they were going to come and they were going to threaten, or they had threatened that they were going to come basically wipe out southern Israel. And during this time, the prophet Isaiah raises up, goes to the king and says, you fear God, don't fear man. You serve God, don't worry about this, trust him, it'll be okay. And so Peter draws from that story and he tells these believers who are facing immense persecution, sanctify Christ in your hearts as Lord and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. This idea of sanctifying Christ in your hearts. I'd encourage you to wake up and pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Lord, I pray that you would just help me to set you apart in my day, in my heart, that as I go about this day, regardless of what comes my way, regardless of what trials, regardless of what persecution, regardless of what joy, what happiness, whatever, that you would be preeminent in my life. And if you start your day and you walk through your day dwelling upon Christ, setting Him in your heart as Lord, when trials, persecutions come, you don't have to worry because God is greater. We sing these songs every week. It's a different thing being able to sing it and being able to live it. Somebody said, I don't know who, that the only way you can stand publicly is because you kneel privately. And so when we have this intimate communion with Christ, we are able to go through our days. It's important. Prayer, being in the Word, worshiping Him, being connected at church. For Hebrew says, don't neglect the fellowship of one another. All of these things help us set apart Christ in our hearts. The world is pulling us away. It's fall. There's all sorts of things. If you let your life, it's so easy to get so involved in so many things and the worries of this world sort of sprout up like weeds and grab hold of you and pull you away. So as he says this, as we 
live differently, as you submit to Christ and you begin to then out of reverence for God, you submit to the authorities, you submit in your workplace, you submit in your marriages, you have these five characteristics that lead to you rejecting evil and doing good. As you suffer for righteousness sake, and you don't respond in the same way that the world responds because you've set Christ apart in your heart, it's going to beg the question, why do you live this way? And Peter says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. See, submitting to Christ, sanctifying Him, fear goes away, hopefulness, our hope in Him, hope in His promises, all of these things increase and the hope that we have in Christ dominates the fear that we look at. This word defense, this is a logical defense. This is the where we get the word apologetics from. This, this word is what would be used for an attorney standing before a judge making a defense for his client with the most powerful evidence to prove their innocence, to prove their case, to prove whatever they're trying to defend. And Peter says, be ready to make a defense, a logical, a well thought out, a, an argument or discussion or reason that's based on solid foundation. In the last couple of years, I've been sort of, it seems silly saying it, but I'm becoming overwhelmingly convicted that the scriptures demand that the followers of Christ think. Think. Reason. Look at the evidence. Because non-believers ask really good questions. Sometimes so good that their questions scare us. And if you don't do your homework, if you don't study, if you're not growing, if you're not walking with Christ, we're quick to just respond, well, I just the Bible says it, so I believe it. Which there's nothing wrong with, like, faith. But see, these hard questions, the truth is the truth. And there's overwhelming evidence which supports the claims of the scriptures. That doesn't mean you'll never be able to not take that step of faith. Faith can never be removed. This movie we're showing on Friday, I've heard it's a great movie. I've never seen it. I, I, you know, I walk a dangerous line because I like movie nights. My first job was in the movie theater. Thank you. I think I had a paper out. That didn't last very long. And neither did the pizza place. But the, the, the movie theater was my first like long time. I love little popcorn watching a movie. And so there's a side of me that thinks, oh, I need to really like preview the movie. But then I just feel like it's ruined, not, you know, the whole intensity. of it. So I haven't seen it. I've done a lot of research. Everything I can tell about this movie, God's Not Dead, is that it's about a, ch- a kid who is in college. He's met with a professor that basically to pass his class, all you have to do is to write on a piece of paper that God is dead. That's all you have to do. And so most of the students will write on the piece of paper, God is dead, pass it in. 
But he says, if you do not write that, then you have to stand and you have to make a defense. Your position is foolish. And so this whole movie is about this young man defending, giving a reason, giving an account for why he believes in God. And it's just bonus that the characters from Duck Dynasty are in there too, but that's not really why I'm showing it. But it's powerful. And I think that this movie will help us to think through why do we believe what we believe. When somebody asks you, why do you believe what you believe, or they have questions about you, don't be intimidated. Talk through. If you don't know the answer, say, you know, I don't know the answer, but that's a great question. Let me go do some homework. Let me email my pastor. Let me Google. Let me find something. I'll get back to you. Don't miss the very two words that sort of end this. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Gentleness and reverence. Those that come to you to ask questions about Christ, respond with gentleness and reverence. Be respectful, be kind, be loving. Recognize that this person who is asking you the question hasn't spent the last year studying their Bible like you have, hasn't been in church learning the Word of God, doesn't have a history with Jesus. You don't have to be the policeman on them on their bad theology. Let them ask their question the whole way through. So often, we turn these questions, we don't respond with gentleness and respect or reverence, and we turn it into an argument. And we want to win the argument, and we win the argument at the expense of the person's soul. And I love that Peter tells us that when we give our defense, we're supposed to do it with gentleness and reverence, respect, humility, so that we win the person. We care less about the argument. The truth is the truth. The truth doesn't need me to defend the truth. The truth is. But what God has called me is to do is all of us is to win the individual. So that takes love, that takes patience, that means let people sort of give them the tools to find their way. So from that, in verse 16, he says, And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which they are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Peter says, your conscience is important. Keep a good conscience, keep a clear conscience. It's easy to read through this thinking, oh, this is a perfect man that's speaking. I read this and I think of the man Peter. Imagine that night in which Jesus was betrayed. It wasn't long. Peter said, I will go to my death to to defend you. And we all know Peter is the guy who denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. That in one of those cases, he he swore on uh, on the Lord's name that he didn't know Jesus. He used profanity to try to distance himself with Jesus. As he watched Jesus' trial unfold, as he watched Jesus' execution, as he watched Jesus be put in the grave, 
And then we see him running to the grave and not finding Jesus. And then Jesus later, as the story unfolds, we see Peter, a broken man, at the edge of the Galilee that early morning as the fire was going. And Jesus says, Peter, do you even love me? Three times. What do you think Peter felt like from that first denial to this time that Jesus... Do you think his conscience was convicted a little bit? To see that this man who denied Jesus three times knowing Jesus, that at the end of his life when they're going to crucify him, he says, I'm not worthy to be crucified. I'm not worthy to die in the same manner that my Lord died. And so they crucified him upside down. This is a man who recognizes that your conscience, it's what you have. God uses it to guide you. Don't go against your conscience. Keep a good conscience. So the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, they ultimately will put it, be put to shame. Trust God for the end result. And he ends with this statement that is self-sufficient on his own. When he reflects on all of this, he simply says, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. If you suffer because you've rejected evil and you're committed to doing good because you've sanctified Christ in your hearts as Lord and it's changed the way that you live, the way you think, the way you behave, your relationship has transformed you. If in the small chance that truly results in persecution, it's better because God willed it in your life. Trusting Him because is whatever suffering you're going through because of righteousness sake, you can't possibly see the bigger picture. And Peter clearly understood that it wasn't about him, it was about the greater good of what God was doing, the greater master plan of his artwork. And so as I end, I want to end with a prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. And Jesus, when he was asked, how shall we pray? Lord, teach us how to pray. He responded like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also, also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And Father, we deeply desire to have you as Lord of our lives. Father, I pray for those in this room who maybe don't know where they stand with you, Lord, that you would help them to come to the place where they would believe that they would trust in Christ for their salvation. We thank you, Lord, that our relationship with you is based on what you did on the cross, that we bring nothing to the table. You don't expect us to bring anything to the table for our salvation, simply believing. And Lord, for those of us who have trusted in you for salvation, for those of us who have been baptized with the Spirit, Lord, that we have been sealed for the day of redemption. Father, we confess that the, the pull of our flesh is so strong and so often we are led astray with the worries, the concerns, the hustle and bustle of this world that we leave you aside. 
And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to keep you at the center of our lives. Lord, we desire to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. Lord, we desire to walk with you and to live for you. But we're helpless. And so, Father, we ask that you would just fill us with your spirit, that you would lead us, teach us, help us to learn your ways. We thank you, Lord, that there is hope in Christ. And we pray this in your good name. Amen.